Hi, you're listening to Currently Processing. It's a show about women for women. We interview brave entrepreneurs and innovators who have overcome obstacles in their lives. We get up close and personal with topics ranging from self-care tips, the importance of mental health, and the lessons they've learned on their journey. Come along. I am your host, Risha Dallas. On today's episode, we have Stephanie Frank. So let me give you a little backstory about Stephanie. Stephanie Frank is a co-founder and creative director of Frankly Good Coffee, a coffee roaster in Las Vegas, Nevada. More recently, her and her husband, Glenn, have opened up a coffee roastery in St. Jude's Children's Hospital in Boulder City, Nevada. So if you live in Vegas and you want to support a great cause and you want to also have some bomb-ass coffee, I would suggest that you visit and say hello and get some great coffee while you're at it. I have actually tried the coffee and it is amazing. And this isn't even me saying that because I'm a friend, but more so it's actually good. Sometimes your friends do things and you wanna be supportive of them, but the thing that they do is not that great. So you're kind of feeling conflicted. That didn't happen. Stephanie and I officially haven't met met, but we have internet met. (laughs) We share the same mentor and Stephanie is a great, great supporter of Vera Organics. She's always commenting and buying products and just being overall great person. And so I wanted to have an episode on her because I was interested in her background. So without further ado, here is the episode. I did of stuff and hopefully you find her entertaining and you find her story inspirational and hopefully you find it interesting. Thank you so much for sitting down with me. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? My name's Stephanie Frank and I am the co-founder of Frankly Good Coffee, which is a coffee roaster located in Boulder City, Nevada, just outside Las Vegas. I run that with my husband. I'm also a runner and a dog mom and consider myself a creative. What can you tell me about your dogs? Oh, I have three dogs. Two of them are rescues with some minor behavior problems. They had behavior problems. That's how they got into rescue. They came with us and we've given them enough structure and routine so that they're like normal dogs. The rescue I got them, we got them from likes to say that a behavior dog in the right home just becomes a normal dog (laughs) with proper management. They are high energy. They all love to run and they're really sweet. All three of them. That's nice. Where did you grow up? I was born in Fairbanks, Alaska. We moved out of there right before I was in first grade. We lived in Utah for a while, but where I really grew up and where I always say that I'm from is it's a tiny town up in northeastern Nevada, Duck Valley Indian Reservation. It's a little town called Owyhee, Nevada. And my parents were there for I think 26 or 27 years total. I was there from eighth grade until I graduated high school, which were my most formative years. And so that is truly where I grew up. How were you as a child? It seems that your town was very small. Was it easy making friends? We moved from Salt Lake City from a big 
mostly all white junior high to a tiny little K through 12 school that had 300 kids total. And it was 99% Native American kids because it was a reservation. So no, it sucked for me (laughs) at first as an eighth grader, as a 13 year old trying to fit in and (laughs) establish myself. The first year was really hard. One of my teachers once in the eighth grade history mentioned, like, I forget the context. It was something in history, but he was like, well, you could have kids as blonde as Stephanie or not. And I looked around and realized a thousandth time that I was the only white kid in the class. (laughs) And it made me feel awkward. And I stuck out like a sore thumb. I have to say the Native American girls were always threatening to kick my ass. And I was afraid because (laughs) I didn't know how to fight and I didn't want to fight. And I had to break up a fight. My brother, who one of my brothers who was in first grade was fighting with another kid. Ironically, they were both white, but (laughs) I had to pull them apart one day and walk him home from school. But as the years went on, and this is hindsight too, I I get how they felt. White kids would come to the reservation because their parents were there, usually in the medical profession, because there was a big hospital there. Well, any doctor, but mostly white doctors would come and do their training. And so if they had families, they would move there. And then they would move away as fast as they can because it was a tiny town and there was no town of any size within like a hundred miles. It was rural and very, and not affluent, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And it was very desolate and isolated. But us as a white family, the longer we lived there, it seemed like the more accepted we were. And by the time I graduated from high school, I would not have wanted to live anywhere else. I would not have wanted to graduate anywhere else. And it kind of started out as like the worst thing for me and it ended Mm -hmm. up being, being the best thing for me. That is so interesting. Did you learn about any of the Native American customs? Yes, a lot. They would have tribal ceremonies in the school gym. They would have fry bread and and Indian tacos, they were the best. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if you would just ask the older generation, if you would just ask them questions, usually it would just take one question and then you could just sit and listen to not only what it was like when they were young, but even further back. And as a kid, I didn't quite get or even necessarily care about the significance of what the reservations really meant, but it was a great spot for us. And when my mom died, she died there and practically the whole community came out. Um, oh, that's nice. Yeah. There was nothing like it that I've seen since. After you left the reservation area, where did you go for college? I went to UNLV in Las Vegas. And mostly there was no other place I was going to go because financially, the financial aid and the scholarships that I got, because I was a good student, worked. My parents had to make a choice of whether they were going to save for retirement or pay for their four kids' education, and they decided to save for retirement. So I had enough financial aid and scholarships to not have to work my first year. My mom worked tirelessly on those applications. And then after that, I spent all four years at UNLV, and I worked Mm part-time to supplement my bills where I needed to for the 
the last three years of college. And what did you study at UNLV? I studied English literature. After trying communications, theater, anthropology, I decided I was such a reader growing up. And my dad encouraged that because he's a writer, he's a novelist. And (laughs) I was the one kid in our family that really loved to read. So I'm like, shit, I'm just going to major in English because I'm not going to major in something I don't love. I had a bunch of friends majoring in hotel administration and accounting, and that just sounds terrible to me. (laughs) So I hesitated because I thought communications would probably be a more useful major, but it just wasn't doing it for me. English did it for me. So that's what I majored in. And I loved it. It's funny. It's kind of the opposite for me. I don't love reading. I don't have the attention span for it, but I liked writing. While I was in college, one of my English teachers went up to me and was basically like, why didn't you major in English? (laughs) And I didn't really have a good answer. I don't know, because I had majored in television and film production. And it sounds cool, yeah. but it wasn't really my jam. <laughs> and I realized my junior year that it was not for me because I preferred the writing aspect of it and the pre-production part. But I ended up getting a writing job on the campus at the writing center. So I guess kind of settled that way. <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, what kind of writing job was it? People would bring in their essays or their resumes and I look over them and help them brainstorm and wow. yeah, that type of job. Boy, I can really identify with that. <laughs> <laughs> so much so. <laughs> After college, what did you do? After college, I was positive that I was never going to go to any more school. I was done with school. I was over it. So Immediately after college, I got a job as a camp counselor up on Mount Charleston, a camp Fox Hill. And then after that, I was like, what am I going to do now? I had no idea. I just didn't want to work fast food. One of the professors at UNLV had a connection inside of a law firm in downtown Las Vegas, and they needed someone to be a document technician, which after I got hired, I found out that was just someone who copies documents all day long, just copies documents. There was a a huge case involved, a huge case going on then involving now it's Nevada energy, but then it was Nevada power. They had rented a small house downtown because there were so many documents and they always needed documents copied. And so I was copying documents all day, every day. And then I'm like, well, I went to college for this. Okay. (laughs) But then I'm like, well, at least, at least I'm not working fast food or anywhere in the food service industry. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I didn't even have a car. I had to take the bus. I was living by UNLV at the time. I had to take a bus downtown and the bus service was so bad and I was late all the time. So they just adjusted my hours because they knew I was taking the bus. It was kind of a nightmare. But I was like, you know, I got to do this. I got to do this. My parents had no money to help me. And even if they did, I don't know if they would have, because they're like, you're out of the house. You got to stand on your own. (laughs) You know, it's your job now. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
So that was my first job. I was in that job for two years and I worked my way up quickly from a document copier to a legal assistant, which can mean anything depending on which firm you're in. I was working inside of the construction litigation department of what was then the biggest law firm in Nevada. And the Nevada power case was pretty high profile in certain circles. And it was long, drawn out, nasty, everything. And the partner on the case was mean and nasty and yelled at us all the time. And I thought that was weird. But then I was like, well, maybe that's just how work works. (laughs) So I knew I didn't want to stay there. I applied at the University of Hawaii to get into their master's program in English because I had a friend there and I knew I could stay with him. And and then I got accepted to that program and I knew it wasn't right. I'm like, I will just end up with a master's in English and I still won't know what I'm doing with my career. So I didn't go. I remember so clearly my boss Jeff, he was a paralegal and he's like, you know, Steph, if you wanted to get certified in paralegal, Roger would probably pay for it. He was the partner in charge. And I knew right then, like, oh, hell no. I'm like, if these people can become an attorney, I know I can become an attorney. <laughs> so after two years at that firm, I, I went to law school. Oh, how was that? It was one of the most stressful times in my life. It was so stressful and I dropped so much weight and it was very hard. And I loved the school I went to. I went to Gonzaga University up in Spokane, Washington, because at that time they did not have a law school here. And even if they did... I had to get the fuck out of Las Vegas. I was over it. I figured I'd probably move away permanently. I was just done. The school was great. The professors were great. I had really close friends. This classwork was hard, though. It was a real blow to my ego because I had gone from kind of being a bigger fish in a medium-sized pond at Mm -hmm. UNLV, and then here I was strictly average, and I got some Cs, and I... I really think that's where a lot of the anxiety and depression that I have struggled with started to take hold there. It's hard for me to eat when I'm stressed. I I got down to a really, really low weight where I didn't want to be. I mean, if I look at pictures from back then, I look way too thin and I was. And so I would not do anything over. I'm glad I did it. Law school was hard, though. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. How old were you during this time? 23 when I started law school. I graduated college at 21, then worked for two years. So I was 23 and then I was 26 when I graduated. And I came straight back to Las Vegas (laughs) 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 because I was so homesick. Mm -hmm. That really caught me by surprise. I was homesick for Vegas. So I came back. My brother had graduated college, my oldest brother. Basically, I stayed on his couch for a year while I took Mm -hmm. the bar and got it together and got a job (laughs) as a lawyer. (laughs) Were you a part of a big firm? It was so funny because I still had contacts at that huge firm. And the partner who was in the construction department, who was head of the construction department, he had left the firm and he had gone out on his own and he had his own office like in the same building. And so 
he just hired me right away as his associate. He didn't want to spend time looking. He already knew that I was smart, that I was a good worker. So I started my career working for him. It was just me, him, a full-time secretary and a part-time bookkeeper. So yeah, it was weird, but it was good though, because I was like, where am I going to find a job? And then there was just one right there for me when I reached out to him. And how long were you a lawyer? I was a lawyer in total for almost 12 years from 1994 to 2006. And do you miss it? No, no. (laughs) Oh my God, no. There's another story around that that we might get to, but that, no, oh my God, I don't miss it at all. So I... I went back to it briefly at the beginning of 2021, and I had so much anxiety and panic attacks around it that I stopped. And then I got, I went into therapy <laughs> that second time. It, if we're going chronologically, it, <laughs> I don't know, but no, Risha, I don't miss it at all. <laughs> I mean, it was a great career. I'm glad I did it. Everything that I'm doing now, I can draw on that hardcore professional background. There's almost no person who's going to intimidate me because I've dealt with a lot of, (laughs) you know. Abuse. (laughs) Yes, abuse and big time people. I mean, like CEOs on the strip and stuff I've had to work with as a lawyer. But yeah, no, there was a lot of abuse. I didn't really think it was abuse. I thought it was me. But years later, when I went into therapy, I acknowledged it and and I feel better. <laughs> it's funny. During the summers of college, I would come back to Connecticut and my mother had a friend who was a business lawyer. So then I would work for him during the summers. But it was basically bitch work. <laughs> so you're basically just copying papers, organizing things, all of the monotonous things you could ever think of. It wasn't for me. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> so after being a lawyer and not really loving it, where did you go next? This was one of the darkest times in my life because I drifted for a couple of years and I felt like such a complete loser and failure for doing so. It had been drummed into my head by me mostly. I think, well, I can't do anything else. I'm a lawyer. I I can't do anything else. And yet I can't do that job anymore. And I had been a couch potato and it was at this time that I first discovered athletics and I got into triathlon, which on paper would seem ridiculous because I was an ultra skinny 30 something who couldn't swim, couldn't run around the block and had never really biked before, but I had to do something. And I latched onto that as a way to cope and to maybe just feel like I could do something constructive that wasn't wrapped around a job and making money. And Mm -hmm. I did triathlon for five years total, long distance triathlon, the half Ironman distance. Oh, wow. And it took a while to work up to that. For the first year of training, I couldn't finish a race to save my life. Then I fired one coach and hired another one. And she was the first person who ever helped me with what was going on in my head because it was real dark in there. Really, really bad, real dark. (laughs) So she was the first person who who helped me with what was going on in my head 
in 2008, I finished my first half Ironman and a bunch of smaller races. And then in 2009, I decided to start a copywriting business, which for those who don't know, because many people think it's related to copywriting your brand and it's not. So copywriting is like you write copy for ads, for websites, for even blog posts, although that's more content writing. Mm-hmm. But I knew I could do that. I knew I would be just as good, if not better than most copywriters out there, because I had that natural skill set from when I was a kid and from college. So I had my copywriting business and I worked with some amazing clients as I built it up from 2009 to roughly 2019. And there were ups and downs with it. And I still really struggled with confidence a lot, but that was the first business that I had that, you know, I'm like, look, I have a hardcore professional, but I like, I wouldn't be saying that to people, but I would be saying that to myself, like as a lawyer, I can do this. And so it worked out for a lot of years doing that. You mentioned you had a coach for your triathlon. Did this coach help you with your overall confidence in life? Yes. And she still is. She's my running coach now. I didn't realize that I could control the thoughts in my head. I didn't realize that. Like I had come off of a swim workout and I'm like, I suck at swimming. I'm like Gumby in the water. And then she read that in the feedback and she's like, well, let's think of some thoughts you could think instead of that. So we started really basic. She's like, how do you want to feel in the water? And I'm like, well, strong, smooth. And she's like, okay. So we made some she called them mantras, but they're just thoughts. They're like, oh, I'm feeling strong. I'm feeling smooth. I'm swimming strong. I'm swimming smooth. And that was how it started for me to actively change those nasty voices in my head to something more constructive, not even positive. I don't believe in all that toxic positivity shit, but just something more constructive that helps me move forward because swimming, I struggled with it for a long time, but that was the turning point. By the time I quit doing long course triathlon, I fucking loved swimming. (laughs) It was great. Did she also do therapy or is she just really good at making it click for people? No, she was just very good at making it click for people. In fact, she had very clear boundaries because when I mentioned that I was struggling with my eating, she's like, oh, you need a nutritionist. <laughs> so she's like, cause I don't do that. So no, she's not a therapist, but I can tell you that she deeply reads on the subjects of psychology and how your thoughts work and how our brains work. And that definitely makes her a really, really great coach. What percentage of performing as an athlete do you think is mental? because if you're really going to advance as an athlete, no matter whether you're an elite or a beginner or somewhere in between, you have to be consistent in your workouts. You have to have a plan and you have to execute on a daily and weekly basis. Most of that is mental because you come up on a workout and you don't feel like doing it. You have to do it anyway. Or if you don't, you'll just progress more slowly. And race execution, look, if you've done the workouts, if you've done like 90% of your training at least, and you know that you have the fitness, races are mostly mental. Like for my last 10K, we had a plan and she's like, get your head in the right space and your body will follow. So yeah, that's a 
great question. So you first were doing paralegal stuff, and then you became a lawyer, and then you started running. What were some other hobbies that you picked up along the way? I was sailing with my husband for quite a few years out here on Lake Mead. And he loves sailing. He'd been doing it since he was a kid. He was raised on Long Island and moved out here in the late 90s. So we would race sailboats on Lake Mead. And we were even going to California and racing there for a while. And that was fun. It was also stressful because at that time I was afraid of the water. So I stopped doing that when I got into triathlon. More recently, my hobbies are improv, which I love, writing. I intend to write a one-woman comedy show and perform it, and and just reading. I used to be really picky about what I read, but now if a novel's engaging, I'll read pretty much anything because it's just my relaxation time. You have a company with your husband now, correct? Yes. So frankly, good coffee. It's a play on our last name. My sister-in-law actually came up with the name, frankly, good coffee. And my husband has an architectural and a building background. And when the great recession hit 2008, 2009, he was let go from his job at an architecture firm. And that really sucked. Because our money situation has gone up and down through the years, as you can Mm -hmm. probably imagine. So then he was working independently for a while. But then people stopped building and they stopped remodeling their homes. And he's like, what am I going to do? Right? What am I doing? So we had gone to Tucson, Arizona to see a friend get married. And we went to a local farmer's market to try and get because we wanted to buy them some local stuff. And we saw a guy there roasting coffee in the back of his truck with this machine. He was bagging it and he was selling it. Two months later, we were set up at our first farmer's market here in Las Vegas. And that was July of 2011. And that's how we got started. So the idea is to roast coffee. That was our first business model to roast coffee right at the farmer's market where the customer could come up, they would see it roasting, they could smell it roasting, and then they could sample it, buy hot coffee, cold coffee, Over the years, Glenn has created the blends that we have, Damn Good Blend, named after Hoover Dam, Red Rock Blend, named after Red Rock, Black Canyon Cold Brew, named after Black Canyon down here. (laughs) And so he just channeled his creativity and his work ethic into building the business. And then it was part-time at first. And then I was in charge of the website, which has gone through several iterations. Like if you look in the Wayback Machine, you'd be like, oh my God, it was so... But it's been a work in progress. And that's how we started. And then Glenn was doing like four or five markets a week for many years. And it was a grind and it was worth it because that's where we got our original customer base from. And that's where we got our original restaurant wholesale accounts from. People literally coming to the market, oh, I'm going to open a bakery. Do you do wholesale? Yes. That shop has been a client for nine years ever since they opened. It was very organic, slow growth. And it was at the beginning of 2020, right before COVID hit, when we decided to stop doing the markets because we were over it. 
<laughs> more specifically, Glenn was over it and just didn't want that grind anymore. And so it was really then that we thought about getting a roastery in a permanent space, really focusing on growing the online part of the business. Then COVID hit and our online sales went up because for a long time, a lot of people were not going out. <laughs> they were just ordering online. So COVID wasn't really that bad for us, actually. We were like, okay, yeah, we can do this. Now we opened a roastery at the end of last year inside St. Jude's Ranch for Children here in Boulder City. <laughs> and we're thrilled with that. We're very excited. How did you land that? So the CEO of St. Jude's, her name is Christina Vela. She and I were in a workshop for women a couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago. I met her there. It was the kind of workshop that focused on self-care, like what goals are you setting for you? Not for your kids, not for anyone else, but you. And so I got to know Christina through that workshop and then just reached out to her and said, Hey, what do you think about this? We had this idea. What do you think about it? And we had a meeting with her and they were all for it. They thought it was a great idea. So we drew up the paperwork and got in. That's amazing. I know there's nothing like connection, just nothing like it at all. I was fooled into thinking that all the big stuff gets done on social media. And I'm sure some of it does, but come on, <laughs> you know, it's all about relationships. That's it, Risha. And I think it always will be. Where do you see Frankly Good Coffee being five years from now? Five years from now, I see us keeping the original roastery at St. Jude's. They have significant plans to expand. They're adding a sex trafficking healing section that's going to be under construction for probably a few years until it's ready. And again, this is just from the public record. I don't have any inside knowledge about it. It's just what I've read. Mm -hmm. And also, though, I... I picture us having one or two retail spaces that are public facing that really focus on the art and craft of roasting. So it's not going to be a coffee shop, not going to be restaurants, but some place where you can go, you can pick up your monthly subscription, which we now have on our website, and you can get a cup of coffee while you're there. If you have a subscription, you can come in and pick it up and get a free cup of coffee. And it's mostly just going to be simple coffee stuff, right? It's going to be more of the coffee and less about frou-frou drinks and food. And I know that we can pull off that model. I know we can. And it's exciting to think about and start making plans for even now. And one last question. Since this show is called Currently Processing, what are you currently processing? I'm currently processing living success on my own terms that I can actually do that because for so many years, I believed it was impossible. And I believe that people who are truly happy in their work and in the other part of their life had to be lying and filled with toxic positivity. So what I've discovered though, what I'm processing is that I can have a business that doesn't suck the soul right out of me. <laughs> <laughs> that still makes money and supports us and it, that can still be scaled to grow the way we want it to grow, not necessarily the way the industry 
standard says we should grow and that I can run without being anxious and weighed down by anxiety and depression and that I can actually become a runner that races and that I can enjoy my downtime without feeling guilty. I'm still processing all of that. I want to thank everyone for listening. You can follow Steph on social media. All of her details will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, consider becoming a subscription member, sharing it with a friend, or leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at Currently Processing Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you soon.